we, um, we started talking about the book of Philemon a few weeks ago, and we're going to continue that today. Uh, the book of Philemon, as a recap, is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a friend of his named Philemon, and it was uh, about a particular slave that Philemon had named Onesimus, who Paul was appealing to Philemon to not only um, forgive him of his debt, but actually set him free and uh, elevate him to the status of a brother rather than maintain uh, the hierarchy of a slave and a slave owner. And one of the beautiful things about this letter is that um, there's like so much theology, so much kingdom value and truth packed into a literal single page in the Bible. And it's been one of the most uh, formative letters that has impacted um, societies wherever Christianity has, has gone. Some societies have taken a long time to figure out this ethic of the kingdom, and, uh, and some picked it up quicker than others, and some are still picking it up. And we wanted to focus on it because, um, because it's, a, it's a beautiful picture of what the, what, what the body of Christ looks like and how we think of each other and how we treat one another. And, um, and it's a great equalizer of people. And going into this fall, we want to be a people who, um, who represents the equality of Jesus Christ and, and his kingdom that exist in his kingdom and continue to live into that. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. In past Sundays, we talked about the economy of power versus the economy of love. And I'm going to refer to that a little bit this morning, but just to recap it so that it's familiar um, when I get there this morning, the idea is that um, most economies, most social settings, most societies are, um, are formed and structured under an economy of power. And so you have power hierarchies, and, um, and you've got kind of power games at play, and the goal of life in a society that is structured for power is to, um, to obtain a lot of things that give you power, or to attain uh, a level of status or, or a level of privilege that gives you power to climb the ladder of authority. Most of your workplaces and your marketplaces are structured with an economy of power, which is why you're trying to move your way up to make more money, to gain more authority in the company, to make greater decisions. And, and, and most, um, most social settings are, are, are organized around this economy. And, and what we learned from Philemon and Paul, too, finally, man, is that in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God does not operate under an economy of power. And we wrestle with it in this world because we live in a place that has an economy of power and we're, we're figuring out what it looks like to live in an economy of love, which is the kingdom of God, while we exist in an economy of power. We kind of talked about that. We'll talk a little more about it later, later today. Last week, Pastor Ian um, who's not here this morning, he had a, his niece's wedding, and he was also at um, Susan's wedding. We celebrated Susan a couple weeks ago, and she got married yesterday, and uh, his text to me was that it was lovely. So that's the good news. It was lovely yesterday, Susan's wedding, and uh, he's away from us today. But he was talking last week about how in this economy of the kingdom of God, um, we share uh, all things. It's, it's mutual giving and receiving. And so we're going to talk a little bit about mutuality today. And last week, Ian highlighted from the book that um, not only is it, a, is it a theory of sharing all things in kind, but there's a reality of actually sharing things 
physical things and skills and gifts in kind. That's how the economy of God in the kingdom of God operates. Today we're going to look at equality and we're going to contrast it a little bit with uh, maybe our modern Western secular understanding of equality, which is really more equity, and we'll talk about that a little bit, and then we're going to see God's principle and truth for equality here in this letter, because it's so clear and it's highlighted um, beautifully in the letter from the Apostle Paul to Philemon. What we did the last couple of weeks, we'll do again, we're going to read it, it's super short, so uh, if you have a hard time listening to somebody else read, I strongly encourage you to just get out your Bible that's probably on your phone nowadays, and just turn right on over to the book of Philemon. If you have a physical Bible and you're looking for it, it's a single page, so I'll give you a minute to find it, because you'll probably flip past it a few times. If you're like the rest of us and you use devices, you can get your phones out now in church, and you can grab the book of Philemon so that you can read along. I'm assuming most of us are there. This is Philemon, there's one chapter, and so this is verse number one. It says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and me. I'm sending him who is my very heart back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced what would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dear to you, both as fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done anything wrong to you or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I'll pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphist, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. This morning what I want to do is I want to contrast this letter to another letter that we find in 
the first century, right at the end of the first century. It's an interesting contrast for you to see um, the ethic of the kingdom and of Paul in contrast to the, the current cultural time in which he lives. It'll paint a clear picture how radical Paul's appeal would have been in early Roman society in which he's writing. This is a letter from Pliny. Pliny was a Roman senator and a jurist. Pliny the Younger, you may have heard of him referred to as. This is written around 100 AD, so maybe within a few decades of the letter written to Philemon. And he's writing to a friend uh, named Sabinianus to intercede for his free man. So we had a former slave in a similar situation, you'll see, and he's writing to a friend, we'll call him Sabi, on his behalf, making an appeal. And he was appealing for reconciliation between the two. Now, Pliny's letter, it reflects the social situation, the comedy of politeness a bit, and the household drama that we find in Paul's letter, but we'll actually see quite a different and distinct cultural ethic and kingdom ethic between the two. So I'm going to read this. It'll be up on the screens as well. To Sabinianus, the freedman of yours with whom you said you were angry has been to me. He flung himself at my feet and clung to me as if I were you. He begged my help with many tears, though he left a good deal unsaid. In short, he convinced me of his genuine penitence. I believe he has reformed because he realizes that he did wrong. You are angry, I know, and I know that your anger was deserved. But mercy wins most praise when there is just cause for anger. You loved the man once, and I hope you will love again. But it is sufficient for the moment that you allow yourself to be appeased. You can always be angry again if he deserves it, and will have more excuses if you once were placated. Make some concession to his youth, his tears, and your own kind heart. And do not torment him or yourself any longer. Anger can only be a torment to your gentle self. It's an interesting, very similar letter, very similar sounding, very similar appeal. And again, this is by a, uh, a Roman um, justice in uh, the late first century. What are the similarities? Similarities are an appeal by an authority to a slave owner on behalf of a slave. It's very clear that that's what's going on. This is a very similar situation. The appeal is for mercy and for concession, and that's very similar to the book of Philemon, the letter from the Apostle Paul to his friend Philemon. And it's very clear, the similarities, there's an understanding that the slave owner would rightfully be angry and justified in their anger and their desire for vengeance. You notice in Paul's letter, he actually says, I could keep him, but I'm sending him back to you to give you the chance to do the right thing. And so in their economy, in their structure at the time, the right thing to do for Paul, and then obviously here for Pliny, was to actually send the slave back to actually be reconciled and to atone for their wrongdoing in some kind of way. But there's a difference here. There's a big difference between the two. It's important that we see this. The first, we kind of talked about it the last couple weeks, is that Paul, his economy is an economy of love that's rooted in the gospel. You saw him kind of mention that I could force you to do this, an economy of power, but I'm not going to. I'm appealing to you on behalf of love, for the sake of love. I'm asking this of you. And so his appeal is because of love. 
and his understanding of love is rooted in the gospel. We're going to unpack that a little bit more later today. In Pliny, the appeal is that mercy wins praise. You saw that here. He says, if you're merciful, even though you have just cause to be angry, you will receive praise. And so his invitation is, show mercy so that you can receive praise. Whereas Paul's appeal is not on the basis of Philemon receiving praise or gaining status because of his mercy. His appeal is based on the obedience to the kingdom of God and obedience to Christ Jesus because of what Christ Jesus has done for him. It's quite a bit of a distinction. The other difference was that Paul was willing to pay the debt. We see that in the letter. Paul says, if there is a debt, I'll pay it. Then he goes on to say, I don't want to have to pay it. You should just forgive it, kind of, right? But he says, but I will pay it. You don't see that with Pliny the Younger. He doesn't go, hey, whatever he did to you, I'll step in the way and pay that debt. It's interesting that Paul, because of his theology, understands that the debt needs to be paid for. And like we said a couple weeks ago, Paul here is actually embodying Christ in this situation and saying, I will pay the debt so that reconciliation can happen. And you don't actually see that in the Pliny letter at all. In Paul's letter, we see an appeal to equal standing. In Pliny's letter, we just see, hey, just don't be too harsh on him. We say, hey, just chill out on the anger. Don't take out your anger on him, i.e., don't give him severe consequences that he deserves. But in Paul, he's actually saying, don't just not treat him out of anger. He says, elevate him to the level of a brother. In the ancient context, the brotherly relationship was the closest relationship you had. I don't know what your relationship with your siblings is like, but in kind of the individualistic West, our siblings are kind of there until they're not, right? In the first century, your brother, as you got older and became adults, they were your closest connection. They were, they were the most important relationship that you had, even more than your mom and your dad, and even more sometimes than your own sibling or your own children. It was that brotherly relation, that familial relationship. You shared the same name, the same heritage. And he says, treat him like a brother. Don't just not get mad at him. And then the other difference is that for Paul, it's for the purpose of the kingdom of God. It's not just to the benefit of the slave owner. We saw earlier for Pliny, he says, hey, mercy receives praise when there's just cause for anger. So if you want some praise, do this. And then he says at the end, he says, anger can only be a torment to your gentle self. He's saying, do this for yourself, right? Not that it's the right thing to do. Not that this is how the, the economy should run. Not that this is the way of the kingdom of God. Just, hey, it'll probably be better for you if you're not angry anymore. It'll be better on you and you'll get some praise for showing some mercy. So that's a good idea. See a big distinction between the appeals. Paul's letter is an appeal to equality that's based on the gospel because of the great equalizer, which is Christ's atonement on the cross for all our iniquities. That's Paul's appeal, and it's rooted in that. His appeal is to an equality that actually has a base to it. There's a narrative there, there's a truth there that determines his appeal for equality. In today's society, we hear a lot about equality. We hear a lot about Equality as though it's like an assumed, like objective value that we all hold or should hold. It's kind of thrown out there 
kind of everywhere nowadays. You get people who get jobs whose only job is to make sure there's a quality at a business or something like that. You get college applications that like the first set of questions is to ask you things about yourself to ensure there's equality in our schools and stuff like that. There's a lot of language of equality. There's a lot of ideas about equality that are just kind of thrown out there casually. And it's treated like this is an objective belief or truth or value that we should all hold. You should ask yourself the question, well, is it? And then what's that rooted in? A study of history or contemporary sociology would show you how unnatural equality is for human societies. I don't know what it's like from your part of the world. There's people from all over the world who are in this room right now. I happen to be from Mississauga, not that exotic. There's a lot of um, cultural representation where I grew up in Mississauga. But I grew up here, so, so, I, so I understand what equality looks like here. I don't know what your societies look like where you grew up. But as far as I can tell from my reading of history and my reading of news is that not everybody shares across all human societies and cultures shares the same value for equality that we do. It's actually pretty uncommon in a lot of parts of the world, most parts of the world. This ethic that we have, that we just assume is a human one that came from nowhere, is not assumed everywhere else. Equality is impractical. It's expensive. It's risky. It's especially risky for those who possess power. Equality is not something that somebody with power wants everyone else to have because it means they lose power. It's not something that those with immense wealth want everyone else to have because it means they lose some of that wealth. It's impractical, it is expensive, it is risky. It's actually most natural to be tribalistic. You fight against it in your own spirit all the time. You think, I'm not supposed to be tribal here, but I am tribal here. I'm not supposed to defend my own. I'm supposed to treat everyone as equals, but I am going to defend my own. I had a really interesting conversation in a, the car the other day. I've been driving a little bit of Uber here and there, and I had this conversation with this um, gentleman. He's coming back from a wedding. He had a few drinks in him, and that's always fun. Um, he found out I was a pastor, and he... Uh, wanted to be heard on a few things kind of thing. And uh, that just happens and you get used to it. We had this half hour car ride coming back from uh, a wedding he was at in Vaughn all the way to Mississauga. And I felt bad for his wife because um, she was just a part of the conversation. And uh, I was doing my absolute best to just be like totally gracious and loving, but it, it seemed like he had a bone to pick with religious people and religion. And his whole thing was that, well, everybody really believes the same things and we're all in agreement uh, about what's good and what's right and true. Almost like there's this assumed human ethic that we all, like we just all, we just know it, right? Because you don't need religion to tell you that, you just know it. But there was an interesting point in the conversation where he started to um, ask these questions about like what if this happened questions because he himself reached a point of going, I guess there are some distinctions. He, he brought up the, uh, the concept of an eye for an eye versus turning the other cheek. He brought this up. And, and I was kind of like, yeah, we don't necessarily all think the same things because either you hit someone back or you don't, right? Like practically, there's a difference. And, and he was in shock 
that anybody would actually believe in turning the other cheek. And I know you're like, that's the right thing to do, but, but he, he put me in these scenarios. He was like, what if this happened? What if this happened, right? And you're trying your best to just like switch the conversation into another direction, but sometimes you're trapped in a car and you're looking for getting five-star rating, you know? So you're like, I'm hoping for a tip here, like, so I'm not gonna, you know, just shut him down or whatever. And it was interesting. He was like, you know, if somebody broke into your home, and threaten your family with a gun, and you had a gun, what would you do, right? And I was like, Jesus would tell me to not shoot the gun, but I'd probably shoot the gun, you know what I mean? Jesus would tell me, no, turn the other cheek. That's the Jesus ethic. But like, he's like, but it's your family. And he said, you're not a good father if you don't protect your family. And I said, I know, the ethic is I need to treat everyone like an equal. But the reality is, like, you bet your butt, you know, I'm fighting for my family here, right? And th that's the right thing to do? Is it the right thing to do? Seems like the right thing to do. I think we would all do that, right? Someone broke into your home, and you, obviously you're going to protect your family, and you're not worried about their health. They broke into your home. But the ethic of Jesus makes us at least second-guess it. And he was shocked by that that you would even second guess it. And I think I was shocked by that, that I would second guess it. In reality, when rubber hits the road, do I really believe everybody is equal or do I believe in justice and protecting my family and protecting my own over them? Is it my kid's life over their life? And I'm not here to suggest that, you know, we shouldn't protect our families. Of course not, that's silly, it's ridiculous. But when you actually start to, um, you take that ethic in your family and then you kind of expand that out to a society, it makes total sense why we're tribal. It makes total sense why we're divisive. It makes total sense why we would protect our own over protecting others. Because that's how we're wired as humans. That is the human response. The human norm is tribalism. The human norm is living in an, uh, an ethic of scarcity, like there's only so much to go around, so I'm going to get mine before other people get it because there's only so much. I'm going to get the promotion instead. I'm going to get that house. I don't know if you, a couple years ago, this Milton housing market was nutty. A lot of enemies created. Good thing you don't know the people you're competing with because you would hate them, right? In that season when it was like 30 crazy bids on houses and it was just this madhouse. It was, if I don't get that house, then, then I've lost out to someone and what I'm after is mine, right? That's so human. It's so natural. It, that is how the economy is built. And we believe that there's not enough to go around, so we need to get ours first. We believe that there's limited resources and we need to protect our own that we need to provide for our own first, and others are in less of a priority than our own and our own kin. That's the norm. And, it, and, and it's not to say that it's a bad thing that that's the norm. It, like I said, it's the human thing that that's a norm. And we use people for our benefit. We manipulate people. We don't like using that language, but we do. We use people for our own benefit, for the benefit of our family. We will trade you for me. We will trade your family for my family. If it, if it comes down to it, we're going to get ours. And then you come after. So we wrestle with this. So this equality, it's not natural. It's not normal. And then to take this ethic of equality in an economy of power, 
is actually where things get really, really dangerous, don't they? In the 20th century, the worst atrocities that we've seen have actually been, they've been from people who have made decisions under the guise of pursuing equality, but then when people don't get on with your program, what do you do about that? If people are free people, what do you do about that? We justify with law or with fairness or with capitalistic assumptions of freedom that we don't have to get on board. And then we also justify doing things to people who don't get on with our program of equality. Orwell's Animal Farm, have you ever read that? It's a short little book. It's a great one. What happens in Orwell's Animal Farm is that there's a farmer and all the animals think that the farmer is oppressing them because he puts them in pens and tells them where to go and feeds them when he wants. And the animals, they rise up to take over and kick out that farmer, right? Finally, we're free. But if you know the story of Animal Farm, what ends up happening is just creates a power vacuum. And some of the animals get together and they fill that vacuum. And the end of the story is that the animals that took over power freed the animals from oppression in in the name of equality. They just ended up being more oppressive leaders than the farmer was in the first place. That's what happens in the story. It's kind of a picture of society when we operate in an economy of power. We use the name of equality or the principle of equality to actually gain power, but then once we have the power, and we're seeing this now, it's interesting in the secular West, are secularists who are about equality any nicer to people who disagree with them than you know, the Christendom was 50 years ago maybe in the West? Not really. Your jobs are threatened. Your status is threatened if you don't get on with the program in the way that they are expecting you to get on with the program. That's just the reality of equality in an economy of power. They're a really dangerous mix because in in an economy of power, somebody has to execute the the equality. And that comes at the expense of other people's freedom or maybe their well-being. And that's at least the example that we've seen in the West in the last 20th century. The principle of equality only works when there's a foundational story that we're all in agreement about. I just lost my notes, so give me a second here. Does anyone want to sing a song or something? (laughs) Nobody? Technology, what do we use this for? Yeah. All right. I want to just draw some distinctions between equality and equity today, this morning, just so you see the difference. Uh, Equality, the first one you can put up there, Shane. Equality is about removing barriers to entry. And in the gospel story, it's all about removing a barrier to entry with God. There's no longer a priesthood that protects that. There's no longer the holy and the righteous ones that protect that. Access to God is not only anymore through Israel, it's available to everybody. Whereas equity is actually about fixing outcomes. It's not about removing barriers to entry, but it's actually about fixing a particular outcome. What's the next one, Shane? Equality is about granting freedom. Equity actually requires you to remove freedom. 
Equity is about the end result and making sure the end result is a level playing field. Not a level playing field, a level result. It's a tie game. Equality is about making sure you have even teams. Equity is about making sure the game ends in a tie and there's no winners or losers, right? Nobody likes playing sports when there's no winner or loser. Come on. It's about granting freedom equality as an equity. is about removing it for the sake of leveling. Equality is about celebrating differences, whereas equity is about conformity. Equality is we celebrate our differences, but equity is we all need to think the same way and act the same way. Equality, go ahead, Shane, is about value, standing, love, and access, whereas equity is about possession. When you're hearing equity, some of you finance people automatically think about a balanced spreadsheet, right? And so the idea with equity is that there's some sort of possession that's balanced out, whereas equality, at least from a Christian worldview, is about value, standing, love, and access, regardless of the possessions had, whether the balance sheet works out. Equality is about the priesthood of all believers, whereas equity is about the powerful leveling for the masses. Equality is about everybody is included, and equity is about those in power to level the playing field for everyone else who can't. And the last one there, and this is the most important one that we see the distinction in, the Christian understanding of equality versus our modern understanding of equality slash equity. Equality is relational. It has to be relational. Equity is structural. Equity is something that you create. It's the structure that you create. It's anti-relational. Whereas true equality in the kingdom of God has to be and is primarily and only based on relationship. It's relational. The challenge in today's cultural conversation around equality is that it's still being proposed without a baseless, with, with a baseless moral code. There, there's, we're trying to propose equality in an economy of power where we have no shared story or history to look towards and to rely on. And like I said, if people are free in your society to disagree, then you never really to achieve equality. Charles Taylor, he's a world-renowned Canadian philosopher at McGill University, and he's an expert in the field of secularism, and he covers all sorts of um, fields like uh, sociology and history of religion and history of philosophy. He's brilliant. I just started reading. Anybody read Charles Taylor? I just started reading him, and like, man, it's one of those things that'll take me 10 years to figure out and get, but it's good. It's really good stuff, and I think any Christian leader in the future should be reading Charles Taylor, not only because he's a Canadian, he's a world-renowned philosopher on the matter of secularism and the secular age in which we live. And his primary concern today, in today's secular humanism, which is kind of the worldview or the religion of the day, is that it is um, ethically rooted in a Judeo-Christian worldview, and it's based on scripture. It's based on letters like Paul's letter to Philemon. Today's value of equality across the world coming, starting from and coming from the West is rooted in our Judeo-Christian worldview and in scripture. But in today's world, in the secular world that we live in, we've disposed of the theology that's the baseline for it. We've gotten rid of the king. We'll take the kingdom, but we, we don't want it with the king. And, and his concern, I think Charles Taylor has a, a Catholic background, but he's if you read his work, he's not, a, he's not a, like a staunch religious commentator, your typical fundamentalist conservative at all. 
He's just a mainstream philosopher, but his concern is that if we don't have a basis for our ethic, a moral basis, a story that's shared, a religious foundation, then we will easily lose it as quick as we got it. It took 2,000 years for Christians to figure out how to achieve at least the level of equality that we've achieved today, which in a lot of cases isn't perfect, right? It took us 2,000 years since Jesus is teaching and Paul's writing for us to go, yeah, slavery is not a good thing. And it does not exist in the kingdom of God. It is not the way of Jesus. Especially in the West, like our West, and just not that long ago, there were Christians that, that didn't understand the ethic of equality in the kingdom of God. It's fascinating. We've just achieved what we've achieved today, and we've got lots of room to grow. And his concern is that we'll lose it as quick as we got it. Any collective ethic or morality has to have a, f- a foundation to it, a basis for it. And what we said earlier is that the basis of it's just the right thing is not a good foundation. Because like we said, what the most human thing, most natural thing to do is not equality. It's self-preservation and to protect our own. So having an internal sense of right and wrong isn't sufficient. He goes on to say in some of his work that um, the only way for an ethic of equality to sustain is to re-root it back in the Judeo-Christian story and narrative of Jesus. And I'm telling you all this today because it's what we see so clearly in Paul's letter to Philemon and in his his ethic, and its rootedness in the gospel of Jesus. Charles Taylor, among many, would say that we in the West, the only way we were able to get rid of an economy that included slavery was an appeal to the gospel, and particularly to a letter like Philemon. And like I said, it took Christians, some Christians, way too long. But the fear is that we could lose that very quickly and go back to an economy of power. N.T. Wright, he says this about Philemon. He says, Uh, Paul cultivated an ecclesial culture of equality and mutuality where the degradation and humiliation of slavery was eclipsed by Christian identity. And then F.F. Bruce, he goes on to say that the epistle to Philemon brings us into an atmosphere in which the institution of slavery could only wilt and die. Today it seems obvious to us. For many in the past it wasn't as obvious, but he says the... there was no room for it to continue long term. And praise God for that. But it's only rooted in a deep theological conviction. So this morning I want us to shift our attention from Philemon to the book of Colossians. Colossians is another book that is a letter written by Paul to a church. And this letter is written to the same church. So Philemon was a leader in the church in Colossae and this letter is written to that group of people. And so I think it'll bring things a little bit more to light for us this morning. At the beginning of of the letter, Paul, he urges the church in Colossians to live in an economy of love and to pursue equality on a theological basis in the same way he does in Philemon. In chapter 1, verse 15 to 20, we're going to revisit this when we do communion today. 
I'm going to read it for us. It says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross." This is Paul's foundation for his appeal to Philemon. And it's his foundation for his appeal here in the book of Colossians. I'm going to pick it up in chapter 3 here. Chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to you, earthly, to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, because these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips." Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self and its practices, and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Christ's appeal to equality amongst the body of Christ There is no male or female. There is no slave or free. There's no Jew or Gentile. He says another time in Galatians is all rooted in his theological conviction that the God of the universe sent his son Jesus Christ to die on our behalf so that all humanity could properly be reconciled to God. And without that story, without that foundation, we cannot hold on to equality long term. It goes too much against our human nature and our flesh. And it is only by the grace of God and our reflection upon his grace that we can properly live into this ethic of equality. Paul's appeal is to unity, reconciliation, and equality, to mutual love, to mutual honor and respect, regardless of race, class, or gender, or whatever, or whatever, or whatever. He says further here in verse 12, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, 
giving thanks to God the Father through him. So if this is true, and this is the only way to equality, and we believe that equality is an ethic of the kingdom of God that we're expected to live into, then how then shall we live? You hear a lot about love, loving everybody. Everybody's equal in my eyes. I'm all about love. And uh, oftentimes there's someone sitting across the table from us that we struggle with treating like they're equally loved by God and equally dignified and worthy of equal treatment and, and that we're supposed to give ourselves to for their purpose and for their sake. And so what I loved about it is the honesty because the truth is on a Sunday we say we're about equality and we're about love and then practically we go home and we struggle with loving those who are right in front of us including those we look at in the mirror. So I just appreciated that as a leveling for us to say, hey, this is a challenge because it goes against our humanity or at least the flesh that is a big part of our humanity. So where do we go from here? We take an audit on our life. Where do we go from here? We focus on the gospel of Jesus because that's the only way Paul was able to maintain an ethic of equality. And how do we grow in that? I've got three tips for you. The first that we can do is we can spend time with the equalizer. Not that equalizer, Shane. The other, the other equalizer. I'm a big, uh, big Denzel fan. I'm stoked for equalizer three. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. Um, we spend time with the equalizer. It's one of those things that we've been talking about a lot. How do you grow in your love for others and in your lived ethic of equality. You got to spend time with Jesus. Paul uses the language in Colossians 3. He says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on the earthly power struggle and the games of the power economy as much as we set our minds on that which is above. That's where we start. So we set our minds on Jesus. We spend time in his presence through prayer, through meditation, contemplation, scripture, etc. We come back to the foundational story of the gospel that is the only sufficient basis for equality. The second thing we do is we surround ourselves with the body of believers. Now remember, we talked about this in the first week. This equality starts with the body of Christ. The appeal that Paul made was on the basis of Onesimus becoming a brother in Christ and therefore treated as a brother. It is not an excuse or justification to treat others who don't follow Jesus as unequal. But the starting place is if we don't figure out how to love one another, then what the heck do we think we're going to do trying to love those who actually have a different moral basis and a different story than us? So we start with one another. Tom Wright says provocatively in his seminal work on the New Testament, he says that Paul was more about building communities and saving souls. And it's not that Paul wasn't about saving souls, but it's through the community learning to become like Christ that we're able to be used by God to effectively do that. And that starts with learning to treat this group of people, those in your community, as a brother in the most real and tangible ways. And so I invite you, as we get set for the fall, we're going to launch communities again on Wednesdays, Thursday nights, and maybe another one. And if you're a part of this faith community and you live close enough by, and you're not a part of a regular table fellowship group, 
I'd say join one of these as we get to launching them in the fall. You'll get more information about it. Regular table fellowship, prayer together, generous sharing, forgiveness and reconciliation, serving one another with our gifts happens on Sunday, but it mostly happens outside of Sunday in spaces where we have to be real with one another. And then the third thing, third tip, is detach from your attachments with acts of generosity. You've heard this. This is not new. Spend time with Jesus. Spend time with the body of Christ and release yourself from your attachments with acts of generosity. We're going to be talking in the fall about fasting and the concept of fasting, the tradition of fasting, and fasting is all about detaching from our attachments, saying no for a season to this so that it is no longer an idol for us so that we could say yes to the presence of God and the most important things in life. So those three things are at least the suggestion this morning. Where do I start? Spend more time with the equalizer, not Denzel. Surround yourself with the body of believers and detach from your attachment with acts of generosity. This morning, we're going to take communion together. I'm going to invite the communion, whoever can pass out communion, to pass it out. Um, It's not like a holy thing to walk around and pass things out. So if you can grab whoever's in the kitchen or nearby, we'll just pass out the elements. Uh, In our church, we do communion once a month, and it's the bread and cup piece of it that some of you guys are familiar with. You don't have to take communion if you're here this morning, uh, but if you follow Jesus, it's one of the things he told us to do, and uh, there's a reason for that. I want to talk a little bit about Charles Taylor again. Um, In some of my listening and reading to Charles Taylor, he talks about one of the things in the secular West that we've lost is, um, is a regular focus on the transcendent. He says, because the transcendent i.e. God and his ways are such a high bar and we constantly feel like we can't reach it, we can't attain it, uh, instead of maintaining spaces where we focus on and, and turn our attention towards the transcendent, which is what communion is, I'll talk about that in a sec, we lower the bar and we just don't do it at all. So we stop going to church so that no one has to remind us of this higher way of living. We stop spending time in community so that nobody calls us out on our crap. We stop actually listening to Christ-centered music and reading scripture because the the bar is really high and the standard's high and it's overwhelming to constantly come short of that. And you're busy. He talks about the imminence of life and the imminence of the daily task. You're exhausted. And so the idea of pursuing the transcendent, the good, the ultimate, that which is of God in the midst of having to deal with all the imminent, it's just overwhelming for us. But one of the things Jesus left us as a thing to do for the church and as the church is communion. And communion is the place, is the primary time where we refocus on what is most true and what is good, what is the foundation for all of our moral beliefs and our ethics, for that which is good in 